Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery, he the perfect Son of Man. In his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law in him we stand. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death the god of life but no grave could e'er restrain him praise the lord he is alive what a foretaste of deliverance how unwavering our hope christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Told the wondrous mystery, how God becomes man and condescends to die for us. Don't ever get over the awe of the fact that Christ became man. We are in Luke chapter 14. We have been looking at some of the difficult sayings of Christ. Those things that when Christ spoke them, you put in context, you put in setting, you even look at today, and you step back and you go, whoa. How could he mean that? How could he say that? And then we went beyond that to say, if any of the sayings of Christ have never offended you, meaning they have never brought you to a place to go, whoa, whoa, whoa I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm not sure I want to do that. Then 
you're not following Jesus, you're following a God of your own making. Because our nature and God's are so diametrically opposed that Christ has to bring us together and in that there will be a conflict of understanding at times. So we come today to Luke chapter 14. We'll then be going back to Luke chapter 6. And so we have two different teachings of the Lord that are the exact opposite. Now, it's not a contradiction, they're just opposite. And you'll see why as we look at them this morning. We start in Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest, haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage, an ambassador, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. The Lord teaches us here, beginning in verse 24, 25, 26, that we are to step back, and the word he uses is essentially hate your family. Now, at just face value of that phrase, that's a saying that we have to look at and admit is a hard saying. And he's very clear about this. Father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, yea, in his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. Now, we live in a generation that's all about love yourself. And love yourself and put value on yourself and praise yourself and be good to yourself and lift yourself up. And we got so much self that we're so full of ourselves that we're depressed. And we live in a generation that doesn't understand what it means to have proper priorities and perspective on the value of our own life. So Jesus is helping, even in this culture, which would have been a very family-oriented culture, to say it's important that you know, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. So you're going to have to hate your family if you're going to follow me. Now, it's important for us to know that in Jewish culture, that the word hate used is not a word that we would use to disdain or to, to dislike. I'll give you an example. Most in here would know my love of Dr. Pepper. I'll go into a restaurant and I'll say, hey, do you have Dr. Pepper? And they will answer this. And if you're like me, you understand the worst, Ben shaking his head in the back, he knows, the worst possible thing any server can say to you when you ask if they have Dr. Pepper. And that is, oh no, but we have Mr. Pibb. I would rather lick the bottom of my shoe than drink Mr. Pibb. I would lick the bottom of your shoe before I would drink Mr. Pibb. Kara has a friend, and, and I say this because it's a friend of theirs. I, I don't like the guy. Um, we, we met, 
Kenneth, her brother, was there, and we were sitting, we were having supper or whatever. I have no idea where we were at. I don't know what we were eating. I don't know what it was. I don't care. But to this moment, there's still a little bitterness in my heart towards that meal. Because this guy kept arguing with me that Mr. Pibb was the same thing as Dr. Pepper. Guy, I about had to smack him. I love one. I hate the other. There is nothing in me that ever has gone, oh, I wish I had a Mr. Pibb. It's never happened. I hate the stuff, okay? I don't want any part of it. We look at love-hate as complete opposites. In their culture, it was a matter of preference and order. Jacob have I loved, I've chosen him. Esau have I hated, I have not chosen him. He is behind Jacob. Rachel have I loved, Leah hated. Behind. He didn't hate Leah, the preference was just on Rachel. So the picture here of hatred has to do with preference. So the Lord is trying to teach. If you're going to follow me, there is a preference order, a a pecking order of value. You're going to have to put me first, and then after me is going to have to fall your family. And then he goes on to illustrate that. And you say, well, that's not really what said it. Well, no, look at the illustration that he gives of this. He then goes on to give illustrations of a man who goes to build a house. He says a man goes to build a house, and when he goes to build the house, he has to figure out if he has the money to build the house, because it's going to cost him to build the house. A man goes to send his troops to war, and as the king sends his troops to war, you need to look at the war and at the number of the enemy, the number you have, and decide if you can win this battle. Because when you go to war, when you build a house, it will cost you. If you're going to follow me, the Lord's saying, it's going to cost you. It will cost you to follow Christ. The Lord had never shied away from that. We live in a day and age in which Christianity has tried to make it to where following Christ is always a profitable endeavor. The Lord didn't try to make it that way. The Lord looked at a great multitude and he said to the great multitude, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you. Because there will be times when my will and the will of your family will differ and you're going to have to follow my will. Now, think specifically into that culture for a minute. The Lord is speaking to Jewish individuals. Jewish individuals who were looking for a Messiah, Jewish individuals who believed strictly in the Old Testament law, Jewish individuals that had an extremely tight, close-knit family, who, if you disregarded the law, could at the very least disown you, if not have you stoned and put to death. So, you're living in a culture in that day in which a rejection of the Old Testament could lead to your death and at least to your expulsion from the family. And the Lord says, if you're going to follow me, and you're going to come to me, and you're going to accept me as the Messiah, then you have to understand that your family may very well reject you. Again, look at the illustration. If you're going to build a house, you need to count the cost of building the house. Now, here, when we go to build a house, we do things differently. We work through, generally speaking, unless you you have the cash, but you maybe either have a builder do it. Most of the time you go to the bank, you get a construction loan from the bank. 
you go to get a construction loan from the bank and the bank is going to look at you and say, okay, we need how you're going to build, what your costs are, we need to see your plans. They will do an appraisal on the plans of the house you're going to build to find out what the final value is of it to see if it's worth them loaning you the money on it. They then will give you draws. They'll give you this amount of money at this time for each stage as you complete it on the house and you build the house until it's completely done. That's not true in every culture. In the Bahamas, it was much more difficult to get financing to build a house. So the way people would generally do is they would start construction on a house and they would build until they ran out of money. So if you and I drive around and we see the foundation of a house and we see the house just starting to come up, we assume they're going to finish it. If we begin to see stuff growing up around that foundation, we assume they went bankrupt. And if you're like me, you go, man, I wonder if I could get that for a good deal. And you begin to look at it and try and assess, they've obviously don't have this, don't want this anymore. I wonder if I could get a good deal off of this house. And so you'll see that along the way. That wasn't the case there. They would build, and they built everything out of blocks because of being in a saltwater environment as well as hurricanes. And so they would build, they would get a big concrete foundation slab, they would put walls up, and they'd run out of money, and they'd stop. And you would see all over the island these concrete foundations these block walls with weeds growing in them 10 12 feet tall and you would make the assumption i would being american that they had been abandoned but they hadn't been abandoned they just didn't count the cost they just started building and ran out of money and so five years later they would save up a little more money and they would come back and they would build again until they ran out of money and oftentimes it would take someone 15, 20 years to finish their house where they could actually move into it because that's how long it took them to save up the money to actually get everything done. And, and that's so foreign to our way of thinking. Jesus is saying, look, there are those among you who have started building and they've had to stop because they ran out of money. And so now what's happened is there's weeds growing up around. And because of it being a smaller society, everybody knew whose that was. And they would ridicule people because you were a fool. You wasted your money getting started and you couldn't finish it. You didn't count what it was going to cost you. If you're going to go to war and you're going to send 10,000 soldiers out and you're going to die to 20,000 soldiers, you're a fool as a king. You need to go and make peace because it's going to cost you and you need to count that cost. If you're going to follow the Lord, you need to recognize that there's a hatred for your family because there is a preference order that has to be given because it's going to cost you to follow me. To hate one's family is to prefer God over them by disregarding what they desire if it conflicts with what God requires. Now, stop for a moment and remember this simple truth. The will of God and the word of God never conflict with each other. So you've got to take the whole context of scripture here. I genuinely do not believe every generation in modern history, the last couple hundred years, every generation in modern history has put this into proper perspective to the entire word of God. When it comes to the relationship of a husband and a wife, what does scripture clearly teach us about that relationship well husbands love your wives all right so we know that that's true husbands are to cherish their wives 
Husbands are to treat their wife as they would themselves. They are to treat them better because they are to treat them as a weaker vessel. Not one that is fragile, but one that is more precious and more valuable. So husbands have a responsibility. Taking that a step further, there is a physical relationship in marriage that needs to be protected and should not be abstained from because of the health of the marriage. Again, clearly taught in scripture. So you put those things together and then you come back to this phrase. So I'm going to put in order the will of God prioritized over family. But the will of God and the word of God don't contradict. So the will of God is never going to lead me in a way that I'm not going to love my wife. But it may very well mean that there are times that my wife doesn't understand what's going on and I have to convince her to yield to the authority and the direction of God, even though she may not completely understand. But it doesn't mean that I disregard her in my following of the Lord. Because if, and here's the danger, and this is especially true of men, and it can be equally true of women. Men, we have ambition, and we have desire to accomplish, and we are driven by our accomplishments, and in so many ways, our accomplishments are our identity. So many men, and I mean good preachers, have been so driven by their need to accomplish and they drive in the name of the Lord that they guise this verse that I have to do what the Lord requires of me as an opportunity to mistreat and to neglect their wives. The will of God and the word of God don't conflict. So if you're telling me the will of God is such that it's going to cause you to not love, cherish your wife, I'm going to tell you straight face, you're a liar. Because that's not true. But I'm also going to tell you that there are times when you have to recognize that the leading of God in your life is more important than family. Now, let me give a, another illustration of this, and we're going to look at several here. In my own life, I will admit I am an extremely independent person when it comes to my extended family. You say, what do you mean by that? I have been married now 14 years, and my wife has never met one of my brothers. So that's what I, he, he's not a bad person, we just haven't crossed paths. He lives about three hours from here, and I just don't feel the need to drive three hours, okay? So, I, I mean, and it's not because there's anything wrong with our relationship, it's just I'm independent that way. It's not a big deal to me. Um, and so, that's just who I am, okay? So, I will admit, though, over the last two years of my life, because of everything that happened with Karen Bedrest, the twins, yada, yada, that I have never in my lifetime wished I lived close to family like I have over the last two years. I mean, just because of the help that it would be in general. Do you know how many John Brown doctor's appointments there are for five kids? It's all the time, and they're not even sick. It, it's just constant. And, and there are times when you go, man, it would be so nice to live near family where you could say, hey, mom, hey, grandma, come take care of them. I want to go to lunch, you know, and, and just there is, is an opportunity there where you say that would be great. But I would not give up serving the Lord as a pastor just to be near family. And so those two things are recognizable. It doesn't mean that I don't love my parents 
care of family. It just means that I recognize serving the Lord is more important than having to live near them. That's not true for everyone. Most people would say, I would rather live near. I have made it very clear. I have zero desire ever in my life to own a big piece of land and let my kids each live on that piece of land. I think it handicaps them. I think it's terrible. I want them to go away. Okay, so I, I mean, it's just I recognize that there is value in them, but I want them to have freedom to go and serve the Lord. David Livingston, great missionary who went through Africa. David Livingston, as he went to Africa, his wife went with him and their children. While in Africa, his fourth child was born on an adventure kind of through Africa and died within a couple of weeks. The next year, on another expedition, their fifth child was born and David Livingston delivered his fifth child. His wife, recognizing all that was going on with health needs, took the kids, went back to England for their health and safety and was there for four years. She came back on another trip, ended up, she's pregnant, has to go back again. So David Livingston and all that he was doing for the Lord had one child die and had to spend years apart from his wife and children. Hudson Taylor, the first year of the China Inland Mission, his little girl died on the mission field. William Carey is another one, and, and his story is much more on the edge of whether I think he did right or not. His wife wanted no part of the mission field. She didn't want to go. He kept pushing her, kept pushing her, kept pushing her, kept pushing her, kept pushing her. The reason she didn't want to go is the village that she lived in. Her family had lived in this small village for 100 years, and they were all very close-knit. She didn't want to leave her family. Finally, after time, he convinced her to go and they went to India. When they got to India, one of their children got dysentery and died at the age of five. At that point, mentally, she couldn't handle it. She, she just came unraveled. And so she had serious mental health issues. Everyone in the mission society there in country knew it. It was very common knowledge. It was a big issue to where he would have to lock her in rooms uh, to keep her from hurting people, including himself. And in all of that, eventually, she passed away. He gets married again. His relationship with his second wife was much better. She passed away. He married a third time. He married someone 17 years younger than him the third time to make sure he, he didn't outlive her. And, and you look at it and you go, here was a man who was a missionary who we say, he gave his life to the Lord, and he saw two wives die and a child. Hudson Taylor, a child. William Carey, or David Livingston, a child. Each of these we look at as great missionaries who two of the three, I would definitely say, made decisions that they followed the Lord, but it cost them and their family dynamics, just time and even lives. One, I would say he probably shouldn't have gone, and today, as a, a mission board in a church, we wouldn't let him go. But we recognize that there is a cost to following the Lord. I don't believe that following the Lord will cost you in our day and age the ability to have a relationship with your close family and extended family. I don't think the will of God, word of God will ever conflict. But I do think there are times when the closeness of family has to be set aside because of the will of God for your life. My parents know, my siblings know. If my relationship with you and your family keeps my children from the Lord, I won't be around you. 
I told my parents very clearly, look, I'll move to Alaska if I have to. And my parents know it, and they believe it. And when we look at it, we have to recognize, I don't have to do what's wrong. Never. That, that's not following the Lord. But there are times when it will cost. And so there are some of you who have family members that because of life choices they've made, you have to distance your family from them. And that can be hard. But you, you got to understand it's okay. Now, you don't have to be ugly to them. But you can distance yourself at times. Everyone knows family is tricky. And the Lord said, what I want you to understand in this is that when it comes to me and your family, I have to be first. you got to recognize it's going to cost you. And if you can do that, then you can follow me. But if you think that you're going to bow to the whims of other sinners, even if they're your family, and still be able to follow me, you'll find that there's going to be eventually be a conflict there. My pastor in Virginia used to say that uh, right is thicker than blood. And oftentimes we tend to give over that which we see as family more than what is right. I believe the number one hindrance to global missions in the world today is family. And number two is our possessions. Take your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Now, hate your family. And we're going to come to Luke chapter 6 and see the exact opposite mentality. And Luke 6 will begin in verse 27. But I say unto you which hear. So to everyone who's listening to him. Love your enemies. So we go from hate your family to love your enemies. These two are seemingly the exact opposite. And yet... They are not. They work together perfectly because hatred is preference and still preference here allows us to overcome ourselves. Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. Unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek offer also the other and him that taketh away thy cloak forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee and of him that taketh away thy goods ask, ask, excuse me, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. When it comes to loving your enemies, we recognize that as Bible believers, we have tendencies towards religiousness. Okay. We believe a religion is when you have to do something. So we would argue that Christianity is not a religion because Christianity is not what I have to do to get to heaven. It's what was done for me that allows me to go to heaven in the death of Christ. 
but we, re, we tend towards a religious nature in our personality. And there has been some of the greatest hatred in the world that has come from religious people. That is true of Christians. That is true of non-Christians. Because that tendency towards religion leads in some ways towards hatred. This past week, we were able to remember and to reminisce and to be called into remembrance of what happened 19 years ago on September 11th. But make no mistake, what happened on September 11th was religious people showing hatred. And if we're not careful, we can be religious people who show hatred. Now, we've talked about this over the past months. With everything going on in America today, it is difficult to not look at certain groups with hatred. And we see the hatred they are spewing and the reaction of Christians all over the country. And if you don't believe so, just look on social media, look in the news post. The reaction of Christians has been equal hatred. It's not what the Lord taught us. The Lord taught us that we are to love our enemies. So much so that if it makes sense to not like them, then that's where you're starting to get close. Because if it makes sense to not like them, then that's what the wicked people of the world do, sinners do. So if it makes sense to like them, well, that's obvious. But if it makes sense to not like them, then those are the ones you should love. That's the idea here. Jesus' compassion towards people manifested itself differently based on the individual. So when it comes to love your enemies, there's a lot of questions that you would have that can be hard to answer. So instead of trying to answer every question, which I could never do, let me give you some thoughts to just consider and to use as examples and models. Jesus showed his love towards enemies in different ways. Now you say, well, who were Jesus' enemies? Well, the reality is we're all at enmity with God because of our sin nature. But there were some specific ones in his earthly ministry, but sinfulness would have caused all enemies. So consider the woman taken in the very act of adultery. Here was a woman who was involved in sinfulness, and the Lord's response to her was simply go and sin no more. To the Pharisees, there was constant rebuke. You whited sepulchers. He goes into the temple and he overthrows the temple. And he casts them out. He feeds thousands because he was moved with compassion. He saw they were hungry and he says, how can we feed them? And he feeds thousands. The next day, they meet him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and the Lord rebukes them. He says in John, look, you didn't come after me because you wanted to see the miracles. You came after me because you wanted more food. There is a food that's more important. It is the bread of life. It is the nourishment of heaven. And you need to focus on what's important. So the Lord, in loving his enemies, would take individuals like Simon the Zealot and ask him to be a follower of him, and he becomes a disciple. And then he brings on Matthew, who's a tax collector, and Simon the Zealot would have wanted to kill someone like Matthew. And he puts them together and he says, you guys need to get along. 
we cannot imagine how difficult it would have been for Matthew and Simon to get along. Now, for Matthew to get along with Simon would have been one thing. For Simon to get along with Matthew, whoo, zealots sought to sneak around and kill Jews who were following Rome and collecting taxes for them. And when you put these two together, the Lord says, look, you guys can love each other. When we understand that the Lord handled things differently, it even was true with Paul. The Philippian jailer beats Paul, and then what does he do? He leads him to Christ. Christ and Paul both were smoked, hit, beaten unjustly. They rebuked the individual who did it to them. Both of them did. Neither one of them fought back. So there's an aspect here in which there is a recognition still of right and wrong. And loving your enemy is not an acceptance of wrong. But it is a compassion towards them. So the Lord goes on to define it. He says, look, love your enemies. And he gives us a list here. Let's go through it real quick. The word love here is unconditional love. To show this love that regardless of your past, regardless of your present, regardless of your actions, I can show love to you. I don't have to agree with you. That's hard. And to this day, we can pretend all we want, but we struggle with this. And it's easy to see when it's someone detached from me, but there are people in our lives that drive us nuts. And they're difficult, and they're hard, and they can be just flat out jerks towards us. And the Lord's saying, you unconditionally love them. Problem is, we live in a society that we love ourselves. And I if my importance is placed on my value of loving myself, then when someone attacks me, I don't have room to love them because they've come against the one I truly love. So to love someone else is to instantly put your play, yourself in a place of vulnerability to their actions. You are to love them. Well, how do you do it? You do it by being good. Love them. Do good to them. The word there is inherent goodness, not superficial goodness. We can do things for people just because we feel like if we do this, it will help pacify the relationship. It will help manipulate them so that we can get what we want out of this. The idea here is, look, you do good to them out of an inherent goodness. That regardless of who they are, they deserve my action of goodness. They deserve my response. Do good to them. Bless them. But it's so hard. And we think, we think, bless your little heart. Okay, so we think, well, bless them in some little superficial way. Bless them is to say good things about them. If there's, oh, just say, a president in your lifetime that you disagreed with in pretty much every way, how easy is it for you to say good things about them? If there's a boss who unjustly fired you, how easy is it for you to say good things about them? We're taught from an early age, if you can't say something nice, then don't say anything at all. So we accept not saying anything as the best course of action. 
the Lord says, look, you take the one who has treated you wrong. No arguments, no questions. And you say good things about them. I don't want to say good things about them. It's hard enough to be silent about them. But when they come up, there should be good that comes out of you. When we look at it, the Lord then goes on to help explain. You do good to them, and then you recognize that it's okay for them to mistreat you. So that if one hits you on the face, you turn so that he can hit the other side. If, verse 29, he taketh away thy cloak, don't forbid him to take thy coat also. The cloak was a big outer garment. Being in a desert environment, it would often be hot in the day, cold at night. And so the cloak would become the blanket that would be covered up. It was normally a very expensive piece of garment, and normally people had one of them. So if someone takes it, the idea was not that you just fight to get it back. It was not just that you let them walk away. It's then if they want literally the shirt off your back, you give it to them. You go, I don't understand that. That, to me, doesn't make sense. But the idea here is that when you turn the other cheek, when you allow someone to take your coat, that you're allowing yourself to be taken advantage of. So when you are taken advantage of, they take what you have unjustly, but you allow them to take it. The Lord also says, pray for them. So you pray for them as if there is a need that God can only meet in their life. You intercede on their behalf. We tend to only want to intercede for people we deeply are emotionally involved in and we have a great connection for. And and we want to see God help them. Take the one that you have a hard time not hating. You pray for them. You do good to them. You let them take advantage of you. And the idea of turning the other cheek is not a physical assault. Because there is a place in which we are allowed for self-defense. The Lord even encourages his disciples to get a sword. It's the idea of being slapped in the face disrespectfully. It would have been common in the culture. It would have been an emotional outpouring. Very emotional people to slap someone. And it was more than just an act of violence. It was an act of humiliation. We even see it going back into the book of Ruth where Mordecai goes and and he pleads on behalf, or I'm sorry, not Boaz, Boaz goes, and and he pleads on behalf to get the rights to marry Ruth and he ends up slapping the guy after he takes the shoe and that, that whole, it's a picture of humiliation because you didn't do the right thing. That's what's taking place here. The Lord says, look, if someone slaps you to humiliate you openly, you don't stand up for yourself, You accept the humiliation and you allow them to do it again. All of this is a complete relinquishing of my rights and my pride. And it is taking someone and giving them value that is greater to me than me. We have very few people that we love in our lives, that we put in that place. And the Lord's saying, don't just do it for those select people you love. Don't even just do it for the people you like. Do it for those you don't like. The ones that don't like you. Give. 
The idea behind this word give here again, the word of God, will of God, is not to give foolishly. Because if someone doesn't work, they shouldn't eat. So scripture has no place for someone who has put themselves in a position and will not help themselves. The idea is there's a legitimate need here. Help with that need. Don't help with the need expecting to get back. Help with the need because there is a need there. But he goes a step beyond. If somebody takes something from you, don't fight to get it back. Don't let it become the goal of your life to ruin that person. One commentator put it this way. Possessions are for using or losing for the glory of God. Love looks with compassion on the beggar and the burglar alike. He said the disciple loses less by letting his things be taken wrongfully than by having them return because of a selfish clamoring of the heart. If that possession that was taken is so valuable to me that it creates an angst and a bitterness in me that destroys a relationship with that individual, then the thing that was taken has actually stolen far more than the value of the possession. There are times in life when we are good at this. There are times in life when we're not good at this. When there are things in which we look at and we say, okay, Lord, it's your money. If this is where you want the money to go, then this is where it goes. This happened recently in my life where I said, Lord, I don't want to spend money on this. But, Lord, you're in control. If this is where this money needs to go, Lord, it's your money, then this is where it's going to go. And in it, the Lord actually provided and blessed us in such a way that he took care of it in ways I had no idea and still don't know completely. And that money didn't get spent for that. But it was not because it was an angst about I would not do this. It was, Lord, it's yours if this is what you want and you use it that way. To lose our possessions and to give our possessions, they're not ours. The Lord is able to protect anything from being stolen. So if it's stolen, it's his. I, I used to, there, I mean, we lived in Podunkville in Virginia. So, you know, there just wasn't much going on around. Everybody knew everybody. And so I would always say, look, my house is unlocked. If you need something, it's unlocked. You can just go in and get what you need. It's unlocked. The only time I would ever lock the doors is when there were people in it. Because I don't want them hurt. The stuff is just stuff. I mean, you, you take the stuff, you take the stuff. It's just stuff. No, I never had anything stolen. It's just stuff. But people are what's more important. So the Lord says, look, if your possessions get taken, then don't clamor over the possessions because they weren't yours to start with. They were mine, and I was letting you steward them. So just trust me. Because if you worry about getting that back, you will ultimately lose far more than the possession that was taken. Love your enemies. And then finally he says, look, be generous. Be generous. If somebody has a need, give to the need. Be generous. Help take care of what's going on. And when there's a legitimate need, it's a blessing to be able to be a part and to help with that need. But as you love your enemies, recognize what happens is at some level they become your enemy because whether it is verbally, physically, or whether it is because of possession, they have taken something from you that you don't believe they should have taken. Your respect, whatever it is. 
and you love them anyway because no matter what has happened, love does not seek revenge. Love doesn't want, well, I need mine. And that honestly, to this day, is still a hard thing. The Lord looked at the people. He said, to follow me, you're going to have to hate family. You're going to have to put them behind me because in following me, you're going to count the cost, and it's going to cost you something. And one of the ways it's going to cost you is you're going to have to be willing to look at your enemies and love them regardless of how you are treated. Because if you only like those people who treat you right, then you're doing just like the sinners. But you're called to do more than that. Now, in here this morning, without a doubt, there are people who have come to your mind in the thought of loving them. That's hard to do. There are perhaps things that you know in your life that are not the will of God and you are not following them because you have family in the way of that. And you recognize that, you know what, I need to help my family by getting in line under God. Whatever it is, look, the reality is these two passages were hard then and they are hard now. But the question is, are we going to come to them, acknowledge them as truth, and regardless of whether they offend our sensibility or not, submit to these truths? Let's pray. Father.